Again, I don't know that you need to turn to the passage. It's so simple. I could just tell you it is the Eighth Commandment, Exodus twenty fifteen. you shall not steal. Uh, and having said that, having uh, declared God's word, let us pray to him before I seek to expound it. Father in heaven, uh, your word is uh, so simply stated. So many of these commandments on the second table are uh, just stated in just a few words. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, and so forth. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, But as we're discovering, there is a world of meaning in each of these uh, commandments and and, and seeking to situate that command or or this or that command within the broader teaching of Scripture. We discover why these are the Ten Commandments and what it means to keep the Ten Commandments, what it is uh, that you are expressing to us, which is your will and your priorities and your values. And so help us, O God, to be true disciples who share with share your values. We confess it isn't easy, but uh, Lord, let us make progress in our understanding and in our in our principles and in our obedience. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I've already said it, but let me say it again, that this is a sermon and a commandment which has to do with economics. It fits within the broader picture biblically of uh, what I would describe as, and I'll confess I never even thought to say these words, but I'm borrowing them from John Murray, biblical economics. Now, that is a subject, if you were to just take the subject of economics on its own, I would say, uh, frankly, that I don't know very much about it. I I don't know that I'm meant to know very much about it. Uh, But I am aware of what the Bible has to say about it, and that's my interest this evening. And that uh, is always my interest on any subject. What does the Bible have to say about this or that subject? We know that it's something that's important to God because it's something that he expresses in his word. And he tells us in so many passages how he wants us to think about things like money and possessions and labor and so forth. Those are all economic categories. Well, when God says in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, the basic idea is plain enough. He's telling us that it is wrong for me to take something from you, to take what belongs to you as my own, as though it belonged to me and not to you. That is the obvious sense uh, by which uh, we refer to stealing or theft. It is to take from someone uh, what is theirs without their consent or even without their knowing it. But there's a bigger idea present. Uh, there is, on the one hand, two bigger ideas, I, I, I should say. One is the whole I, uh, thought world of economics. But even before that, it's the way that we relate to that thought world. The bigger idea being the sin that is involved in stealing, or rather the sinfulness present in the heart and life of the thief. It is the way of life in which theft is included, which we saw in Ephesians chapter 4. One of the things scripture tells us about the unregenerate man is that his way of life includes this vice. The sinner is a theft at heart or a thief at heart, excuse me. And very often his actions match his feelings. Theft is common among the unbelieving. It, it may take many forms. It does take many forms, but it is common. And we are told in Ephesians chapter four That this is one of the vices that we are to put away when we put on Christ. Let him who stole steal no more, Paul says. Well, again, the old man, if you look at the contrast that's being described there, the old man is a thief at heart. 
It's one of his characteristic sins. Whereas the new man, Paul says, does not steal. What is more, Paul says, uh, rather than seeking to take from others, he is generous at heart, and so he seeks to give. And he also seeks to, honest, uh, to, to, to labor honestly rather than dishonestly through theft. Now, this is something we'll come back to. But you see, again, how Paul is presenting uh, the idea of the Eighth Commandment and the other commandments as well in Ephesians 4 in terms of this contrast, the old and the new man. And again, that's how I want to consider it. But if we were to continue to look at the old man and his ways, which is not just our old selves, but anyone who is outside of Christ, we could also say more about uh, his way of life and his outlook and his values or his lack thereof. There are three further vices which drive him to this sin. One of them is greed, Ephesians chapter 4, 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The unregenerate, unregenerate man is greedy. Greed is an inordinate desire for wealth. And he's so depraved in thought that it never occurs to him. That there's more to life than the accumulation of riches by whatever means. And when I say by whatever means, that includes for the unbeliever theft in its various forms. Another vice which drives him to this, and we'll find again, this is something that ought not to be found in the churches, but which is uh, absolutely common and rampant in the unbelieving community, and that's laziness or sloth. He doesn't work, so he steals. And third... There is also a sense of entitlement. What belongs to you belongs to me in reality. He's so proud that he actually thinks the whole world belongs to him. And so it's pride or it's or selfishness. That's what's in his heart. No one has any right to this but me. And so the thief thinks only of himself what he can do to enrich himself. He has no thought of others. That's the old man. And so you see, Paul is describing this sin and its opposite in terms of a way of life and an outlook. The way we once walked, Paul says, but the way which we walk no more, we who have learned Christ. And so as we look at the other side of this, considering how the believer now views the world, we must take into account the thought world in which he now lives and those considerations which which give the eighth commandment its meaning. As you look at what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, he is describing the great change that conversion has upon a man. It places him into Christ, but again, it also changes his values and his outlook and his way of life and his desires and so forth. And so he not only has now a renewed relationship with God, which make the first four commandments intelligible and meaningful, but a renewed relationship with his fellow man, the second table of the law. What I'm saying is that this this new man who has new values is a Christian, plain and simple, someone who has learned Christ, a disciple. And yes, with that, that also means that his economics have changed along with everything else. He now sees the value of honest work and an honest living of providing for his own and so forth. We will explore several of the passages which which reveal this as the ethics of the New Testament. But you see, as soon as a man becomes a Christian, his ethics change. And his ethics begin to resemble more and more what we find in the Ten Commandments. His whole view of the world is different. 
And so he begins to work that out in every realm of his life, even once more in his relationship with his work, with his money, with others and so on. And so let us try to work that out to try to present the biblical thought world in, into which the Christian is now operating and working out economic principles. And there's seven principles uh, that scripture teaches and which if he understands, he'll not only keep the Eighth Commandment, but perhaps it will help him to understand uh, and to respond to the economic ills uh, that he is told he's supposed to respond to in the world. Now, the first is the idea of labor. Let us uh, begin by looking at several passages which deal with the idea of labor. And the first passage I would refer to, I refer to it in the prayer, actually, and that is the fourth commandment. And characteristically, we think of the fourth commandment in terms of rest. But actually, the Lord tells us to rest in response to labor. In the fourth commandment, the Lord says in the form of a command, six days you shall labor. You see, that is actually a command from the Lord It's a positive command. Every bit as much as when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so when God tells us to keep the Sabbath, he is speaking to people who understand that labor is something equally that God requires. And so it's in the context of industry and hard work, six days of labor, that God reminds man that he is also commanded to rest. As John Murray says in his chapter on labor and principles of conduct, It is rest in relation to labor. I think that's a helpful way of putting it, the fourth commandment. Not rest in isolation, but rest in in relation to labor. He is speaking to the man who's laboring hard for six days and telling him, I want you to rest one of the seven. But then uh, there's several things the New Testament has to say. Uh, Two or three passages I want to look at. We already looked at Ephesians 4. But uh, there's a passage which perhaps is even more striking and more important in this whole discussion. Which presents the ethics of Christianity with regard to labor in particular so strikingly. And that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 12. Let me just read that to you. He says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked or, 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 or but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort you through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Well, you see, he's saying a great deal there. And and really, I could preach a sermon on that passage alone. But let me just notice the main features. Paul is speaking in terms of an apostolic tradition uh, of a of a a way of life that they embodied and modeled for the churches of of hard work, of industry. And which he says those who do not follow in the church are disorderly, they're busybodies and they ought to be rebuked or else to have no place in the church. 
And so the apostolic teaching and tradition here is presented in terms of, uh, let us just call it the Christian work ethic. What later became known as the Protestant work ethic. The, 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 the apostles, he says, themselves are not exempt from this. They labored with labor and toil, he says, night and day, so as to not present a burden. And then he applies it to the people. Let them work as well for their own bread or else let them not eat. If a man doesn't work, he ought not to eat. And so it applied to all equally, the apostles and the people alike. And the disorderly people he condemns. He tells us are those who do not work, the lazy, the slothful. But he sums it up in verse 12 when he says, those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Again, there is the Christian work ethic. There is the principle of labor worked out for the church. Let a man work. Let him work and, uh, and labor and toil in quietness and eat his own bread. That's what the Christian does, who is like the apostles. Equally, we find the Apostle Paul saying in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, if anyone, <clears throat> excuse me, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, you see the Christian ethic being worked out in terms of these economic principles. No man has any right to call himself a Christian if he does not work to provide for his own family. He's worse than an unbeliever. So the Christian is one who, now that he has been converted, now that he's learned Christ, appreciates the value of honest work and providing for his own household. And he, so he doesn't steal in order to do so. All along he's keeping the Eighth Commandment. He's prepared to work. Indeed, we can take this thought further, going back to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, that what is really being presented here, together as well, uh, we might say, with the Fourth Commandment, is hard work. And nothing less than that, not just a willingness to work as little as possible, the bare minimum to survive, but hard work, labor and toil, Paul says, night and day, the kind of work that taxes us so much for six days that we have to rest at the end of the six days in order to survive. And it is in the absence of this, Paul says, the absence of hard work and toil. That all kinds of vice abounds and sin, which he speaks of as busybodies. They have nothing better to do than sin. Well, you really ought to be busy. You ought to get a job. You ought to wear yourself out, he's saying. Well, the busybody, as I say, is someone who has nothing better to do than sin. Let that not be said of any of us. But going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, that's what the New Testament has to say. And believe me, there are many, many other passages which deal with this subject. There's just a summary and a snapshot. But go back to the creation. And there we find the concept as well. We're still under the first setting of labor. Adam was made to work. He was to be a laborer. He was, for one thing, to garden, keep the garden. That is to say, he was a priest and a gardener. He was to guard it from intrusion from the serpent, which he failed to do. But he was also to keep it as a gardener. Another thing he was to do was to subdue and fill the earth. He was to be the king, the rightful king of the earth. It was quite a vocation that the Lord gave Adam. But that was his labor. That was his job description. And then as you look at the curse, what happened when man fell into sin, what you notice is that labor itself is what God cursed. 
that man would now labor and toil in frustration and that the earth would not bear fruit quite in the way it was meant to, though it would still bear fruit. And let us be careful when we say this, not to see labor as the curse. Labor was not the curse. Labor was a blessing. It always was. It was the task which God gave to man in creating him. And so we ought not to look at our vocations and our labors as a curse from God. That isn't right. We ought to say instead that labor itself is cursed. That is, in our vocations and in our labor, we are confronted daily with the curse. But labor itself is not what it is to live under the curse. The vocations which God gives us all are blessings. And so labor is the first point. Christians ought to work hard and not be lazy, not be busybodies and so forth. But then as we work out this principle, we see the next idea is that of wages. And the principle of Scripture, which you find throughout in the Old and New Testament, is plain and simple that the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, a man deserves his due. The man who's worked hard ought to have something to show for it. Now, if it is true, as Paul says, that he who labors not ought to eat not, it is equally true on the other side that he who labors ought to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And even though in this he confronts the curse daily, nevertheless, there are still wages to be had. The earth will still bear fruit just with toil and frustration. And so because of this, it is wrong to deprive a man of his wages. That is the clear biblical principle. If a man were to work and you were not to pay him for it, for instance, would be a clear instance of theft. It would be to break the eighth commandment. It would be to rob him of what he had earned. And so the principle of wages is the second principle. But then thirdly, and I hope you can see the way I'm working this out, perhaps you can anticipate what the next point is, property. As we build upon point by point. As a man labors and earns his wages, so he is able with those wages to purchase things and acquire property. These are things which then belong to him. Which leads us to speak of the concept not simply of property, but of private property, a concept which is thoroughly biblical. The, the ability to say, I worked for this, I earned the money, I bought this, and it is mine. It belongs to me. It is that concept of private property that is the undergirding of the Eighth Commandment itself. In fact, apart from this concept, the Eighth Commandment simply has no meaning. You shall not steal. Well, steal what? What belongs to another? His property. And the reason it's wrong to steal from a man his property, as you tie it all together, is that you are depriving a man of the fruit of his own labors. He's worked hard. He ought to be able to enjoy it. You are taking what he has rightfully earned for himself by his own sweat and toil. You are seeking, in other words, to short circuit the lawful means of accumulating property. You were meant to work for it, but you just stole it. Which brings me to the next thought, and that is that of wealth. This is another major idea in the Bible. Wealth is the result of this process of accumulation. Over time, a man acquires more and more by his labors, and so he builds wealth as a result. Another word for wealth is riches. And many of the most prominent figures of the Bible were rich. It would be very difficult to suggest because of this that the Bible is against the idea of riches. Or that it condemns the man who's rich. It doesn't. It warns us constantly against the dangers of riches. 
It tells us that the love of money is a snare, ruining many souls. But it never once suggests that to possess wealth or to be rich is wrong. Never once. That is, to have acquired a great deal of possessions in this world. Of course, we know as Christians that life consists of more than than an abundance of possessions and an abundance of riches. There's so much more to life than that. If anyone knows that, it's the Christian. But he's equally prepared to say there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. It's a false inference to suggest that riches are therefore wrong automatically. They are not. But then that brings me to a fifth concept, which is a difficult one, but we have to deal with it. And that is the thought of inequality and of an economic hierarchy as presented in the Bible. This is something that you will find consistently If you are familiar with the biblical teaching on the subject, again, let me underline the concept of inequality. The economics of the Bible straight through the New Testament assume a presence of an order in which inequality is the norm or the rule. In other words, you have the presence of those who have more than others, the rich and the poor. Something which biblical economics recognizes. And how does it suggest that we deal with this? The presence of inequality, the rich and the poor. Well, for one thing, you notice it never once suggests there is anything wrong with this. Which is what we have to try to see. If one man has more than another, that is something that is not inherently wrong. It is rather the result, more often than not, of providence, if not industry. Of course, we're also prepared to say, biblically, that riches ill-gotten is something the Bible always condemns. And so I'm not advocating for that. But I am also not suggesting that the way to deal with the problem of the rich and the poor is to take from the rich and give to the poor, because that would be theft. That would be to break the Eighth Commandment, which God tells us not to do. Where do you ever find the Bible suggesting that we ought to rob the the rich and give to the poor? On the other hand, the Bible does tell the rich that they ought to be generous, that they ought to give out of uh, the abundance that God has given them to remember the poor. But it never suggests that it's right for the poor to steal from the rich. Now, this is a point which I found John Murray especially helpful in describing and discussing in his book, Principles of Conduct in the Chapter on Labor. Uh, What he said I felt was so helpful that I wanted to quote it in full. He was uh, dealing specifically with something he confronted in his age, which we confront in our own, uh, and that is with the evils and the dangers of communism, something which the church has always, when she's in her right mind, denounced and condemned as uh, not only beside the teaching of Scripture, but thoroughly opposed to the teaching of Scripture, if only because of the Eighth, Eighth Commandment itself. It is an entire system built upon the principle of theft. Well, this is what he says. The economic structure, this is a lengthy quote, but I believe it's worthwhile. The economic structure presupposed in the teaching of the New Testament, as well as that of the old, is one in terms of a distinction between rich and poor. And it is apparent that this distinction is recognized as a distinction compatible with the divinely instituted order of society. It is simply a fact That God has not ordained equality of distribution of gift or possession. And because this so, this is so, it is impossible to put equality into effect. And so he asks, 
Are we to engage in a leveling process that will secure uniformity and make all conform to a stereotyped average? How absurd would be the attempt and how futile? Equality is not a fact of God's providence. And it is not a rule to be practiced in the order he has instituted. Diversity is a fact to be recognized and the rule to be followed. Liberty itself must take account of inequality. Those are blasphemous words in terms of the modern orthodoxy you find in society. But again, our interest is in the teaching of scripture and in the order that God has instituted in the world. We ought to seek to uphold it. And so you see, we are dealing with the concept of biblical economics. As soon as you begin to consider what it is God is requiring of us in the Eighth Commandment. And we're facing today, as in every age, the question concerning inequality between the rich and the poor. And I think we Christians are better prepared to deal with this than most. In no way am I saying that inequality is always good. It's often bad. It's often the result of sin. It's often the result of the rich themselves breaking the Eighth Commandment with respect to the poor or failing to be generous. But as Murray says later on in that chapter, that is because the God-given structure is being abused. And that's what we ought to say. The, result, uh, the response to the abuses of the God-given structure is not the arguments of communism that we ought to overturn the structures itself and deny God in the process. That's the point we have to see. The evils of communism are seen in the abolition of the distinction and even in the abolition of wealth itself, which is a position that the Christians simply cannot possibly maintain. But still, we're not finished. We have two further principles. In the sixth place, and again, you remember what I'm presenting is the Christian view of economics, of money and so forth, which is what the Eighth Commandment is a part of. And that is that we must always think of others, not think of money purely in terms of self, but in terms of others. In fact, if you think of every commandment, this is something Calvin points out in the Institutes, every single commandment presents our duty in terms of another, not in terms of self. The first four commandments dealing with our duty towards God, the second six dealing with our duty towards others. And this is where the greatest abuses of capitalism come in, where greed and avarice lead to thoughts only of self, only of accumulating more wealth for me, even at the expense of others. There's no thought of how others are affected. Well, perhaps I would say the unregenerate man can live like this, but this, the Christian simply cannot. He is always concerned to know in all of his actions and even in all of his thoughts, how is what I am doing affecting someone else? He is equally concerned with respect to the Eighth Commandment, not with promoting and increasing his own wealth, but also promoting and increasing the wealth of others. Equally concerned. You notice I said. He wants to see others prospering, not just himself. No doubt this is what Paul had in mind when he describes the Christian industry and ethic in terms of generosity. Remember to be generous, he says, not just to labor for the sake of your own families, but remember to be generous. Have enough to give to others. I remember C.S. Lewis saying that the Christian is someone who intentionally impoverishes himself. He, he might have more, but as a result of his generosity, as a result of giving to others into the church, he is less than he might have had otherwise. 
In other places, the Apostle Paul says that to the rich. Remember the poor. Remember to be generous. Or listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism in describing the ethics of the Eighth Commandment. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves. How many would stop there? The last two words, and others, and others. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth and outward estate. An equal concern for both. You see, it isn't, it isn't enough just to maintain your own right to private property. How many of us would read the Eighth Commandment in terms of that? You shouldn't take what's mine. That isn't what the Eighth Commandment's after. It's telling you not to take what belongs to someone else and to be sure that he has every right to what is his as you have to your own. And so you have no right to steal. You have no right to deprive your brother of what is his or even to do anything which would hinder him from furthering and building his own wealth in this world. But finally, there's a seventh commandment or category uh, or principle which has to come in here as well. And we, we sang about it. We're going to do so again in the final hymn. Again, what we are considering, I would remind you, is the economics of the Christian man, the new man in Christ, the man who's learned Christ. And in learning Christ, he's learned to think about money and possessions and so forth in a new way. And that is uh, the final category is the importance of contentment. Indeed, in many ways, that is all God is telling us in this commandment to be content with our present portion. And if you are content, you'll have no thought of stealing, will you? You won't be driven by greed or discontentment to get more for yourself than providence has allotted to you. Every time that is your thought, you're unable to get more than providence will allow. You will be driven to theft. Discontentment is the root sin which stands behind the Eighth Commandment. Every transgression of the Eighth Commandment, I mean. And so it's in this sense that the writer to the Hebrews tells a pilgrim people at the end in his closing exhortations that they ought to be content with what they have. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 and not to seek to get more. Again, speaking to pilgrim people, he is warning in that passage against a spirit of covetousness. A spirit which seeks too much from this world and which is never satisfied with what it has. What he's saying to them is that's no way to get to heaven. There's no way to live as pilgrims and Christians. The true pilgrim, he says, knows better. He's not so easily ensnared by the love of money. His great interest once more is getting to heaven and making the most of the time while he's here. Now, there's, of course, in that a place to make money. But you see, for the Christian, for the pilgrim whose great desires get to heaven, it is not the main consideration. Nor can we ever allow it to be the main consideration. There are things which are of infinitely greater value than riches in this world. And we must never lose sight of these things. Or perhaps Jesus tells us we will have gained the whole world only to lose our souls. Never lose sight of the eternal. Never lose sight of the spiritual. Never lose sight of where you're going. If you get too ensnared in riches as so many have done, you might lose everything. That really matters and that has true value. And so let me put it like this as I close. Going back to Paul's description of the new man in Ephesians 4. The Christian and only the Christian is a man who knows how to hold things in balance. 
he is able to avoid the extremes which are so common, for instance, in our own age. He can look, for instance, at the rich and the poor and not be carried into uh, the kinds of extremes which we see today. Though it seems more and more that no one is able to do so. But for the Christian man. And so he can also earn an honest living, but not be carried away by this. You remember that I said in the Sabbath sermon that it's wrong to be a workaholic. It's actually sinful to always be working and never resting. God commands us to rest as well, to work hard, but also to remember to rest. Again, what you notice is the balance. Equally, he may begin by his own industry and the kind providence of God to acquire a certain amount of wealth in this life. But it has no hold on his heart. It doesn't capture him and ensnare him in the same way it does to those who live in the world. Sometimes people today make it seem the only reason to be alive is to make more money. What a sad way to live, Jesus tells us. Life consists of so much more than the abundance of possessions. In fact, to live like this really misses the whole reason we are alive, which is to enjoy communion with God. You remember I said that was the image of God and man. We are meant to live for God. So money, like so many other things, and I would even put the Sabbath in this category, is just a servant. It was given for our sakes, not for us. Man wasn't made for money. Money was made for man. And so we weren't made to serve money, although it is the hardest master, at least it can be. Money was made to serve us. Never let it become the master. Indeed, I would say only the Christian is capable of this. Also, the Christian is someone who is generous. He isn't so tied to his money that he can't bear the thought of giving it away. No, he sees that God is the ultimate provider. And so it concerns him little to lose what he has now. Cannot God provide each day what is necessary? And then as an ultimate consideration, what Paul tells us, I'd never looked to these passages. And the sermon would have been much longer if I had. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, he tells us, That we ought to labor primarily for the glory of God. And that a man who lives for the glory of God, going back to this idea of the Protestant work work ethic, is going to be the man who is most hardworking and even most successful. But not because he sets out to be successful, not because he sets out to impress others at what a hard worker he is. But because he lives for the glory of God, he realizes that God has placed him in this world for a reason. And it wasn't to just bide the time. But that there were things which God meant for us to do. And our business is to do them. And so we're to labor for his glory. To put this negatively, we are not to labor in order to please men. Man pleasing is the cardinal vice of labor. That's what you find Paul saying in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. Even the slave is capable of this and he warns the slave against it. Even the slave, he says, is to labor to please God and not man. And so that's what he's telling the Christian in whatever station he finds himself, even in the lowest possible station, labor for the glory of God. And the amazing thing that you will discover if you begin to live like this, laboring as unto the Lord, not to please men, not even yourself, is that the burden of labor is all but removed. It ceases to be drudgery and begins to be a joy. And you begin to see the real value in labor again as a gift and a blessing from the Lord. You see, in other words, wherever you are and whatever station you assume in this sad world, every day is a chance to glorify and enjoy God. Westminster Shorter Catechism chapter or or, uh, number one. The opportunity is simply always present. It is present for the poor and the rich alike. Each of them 
is always given the opportunity through his own industry and his own vocation to glorify God and all that he does. No man is deprived in his labor from glorifying God. Not a single one. It's only the lazy man who does not work who cannot know this blessing. And so when God says you shall not steal, he's telling us how he expects us to live and to work and to spend our days. He wants us to depend upon him. The problem with the thief ultimately is that he doesn't believe in God. He lives as though there's no God in this world. If he did, if he did believe in God, he wouldn't steal. He would simply trust God to provide. But the man who believes in God knows that there will be something for him. And he need not resort to sin in order to survive ever. I'll say that again. He need not resort to sin in order to survive. In fact, it would be better to die rather than to sin against our creator. And even then, we commit our souls and our lives to him, even in death. All that is required of us is that we are prepared to work and to do so honestly and diligently. And then there will be no thought or need of stealing. And so, as I close, I want to do so by reading again what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 28 through 32, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Let us respond now with another hymn of contentment by standing together and singing hymn 444.